So welcome along to our sermon expanded. We're looking at Sunday the 25th of February where we thought about Luke chapter 14 verses 25 to 35, the cost of discipleship. I'm going to read from the New International Version and I'm telling you that because we're going to think about that in a little second but it's entitled The Cost of Being a Disciple. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we have this passage of Jesus, a hard passage, a passage that isn't particularly nice. It isn't particularly easy to listen to. It is a passage that Jesus emphasizes the cost of following him. We have these interpretations of the Bible. We have these different translations of the Bible. If you go uh, into a bookstore, if you go into a Christian bookstore or even a high street bookstore, you will find different interpretations of the Bible. Here in front of me, I have the New International Version, which we read from. I also have the English Standard Version. There is today's New International Version. Um, Somewhere on my shelves, I can see the message. I can see the Dramatized Bible an interesting one. I can see Hoffman's study Bible. I can see in the far side of my study, uh, what can we see? A Greek Bible, a Hebrew Bible. I can see a youth Bible. I can see the through the Bible. I can see uh, the King James Version. All these different kinds and that's only to name a few. We have so many different types of Bibles. Caleb, my one-year-old, already has a Bible of his own. It's a child's Bible, it's not the King James Version. We have all these different translations of the originals, which were in Hebrew and Greek and parts in Aramaic. We have then had to translate these because obviously we all can't speak Hebrew and Greek coming through college. I should be able to, but I'm not very good at languages, so I'm not fluent in Hebrew or Greek. And so I'm glad there was a translation of the Bible If you go on to any website or search in your Google engine to try to try and find out about interpretations, translations of the Bible, you see all kinds of ones. The of course it was written in in Hebrew and Greek, so there are all these translations from that. We are told that in the second century there was the first translations by certain people. The Christian Bible was formally established in three hundred and fifty together as a book. We have um, 
the Septuagint, which is the Latin version in the 4th century, it was translated into Gothic. In the 5th, it was translated into an Armenian. It, uh, there is Syriac, Coptic, Nubian, Ethiopic, Georgian, all these kind of translations that we have. The whole point being for people to read it in their own language. And still we have this going on with the likes of the Wycliffe Bible translation, where people are still going around the world translating into all kind of different languages so that people can understand it. That has its own difficulties, that has its, has its problems, that has all kinds of nuances that we miss out. The King James was the first major English one where it was trying to put it into modern day language, but we have all kinds of ones. Now, um, just reading through this, all kinds of different interpretations. It doesn't actually give us how many, but we have these translations. And from the Hebrew and Greek, obviously, they spoke in a certain language. They spoke Hebrew and Greek. They had words they knew. And a bit like we have in English now, if we are to teach someone English, there is there, there and there, all used in different ways. We have where and where, which we know how to use, but someone coming to this language will find it incredibly difficult how and when to use these, especially with their different meanings, their different understandings, their different spellings. You'll find that as you educate a child in these things that it's incredibly difficult to help them and it takes a lifetime almost to, to work out the full understandings of our first language. And so for translators, the problem was trying to translate things to be correct to translate it in a proper way using proper words, proper translated words, but to also do that in such a way to fulfill the meaning of what those words meant. You can get interlinear Bibles which literally word for word translate everything and you can read that through, but the sentences in English don't make sense. Let me just give you an example of that. So we're going to read from the interlinear Bible. We're going to read Luke chapter 14 verses 25. We're going to a bit of 26 from the actual ordered Greek. And so it begins at verse 25. Came together, and to him crowds many, and turning he said to them, If anyone comes to me, and not hates the father of him, and the mother, and the wife, and the children, and the brothers, and the sisters, besides, and even of himself soul, not he is able of me a disciple to be. And who not does bear the cross of him, and comes after me, not he is able of me to be a disciple so it's a bit like listening to Obi-Wan Kenobi speak. It doesn't flow, it doesn't make sense in the ordered Greek to translate directly. And so we have to reorder that. We have to turn it into proper language. And that's those are easy sentences when it comes into theological terms in the likes of Paul's letter. We have to bring in our nuances of what the words mean and try and reason the arguments that he is making into a sense that we understand. And so translation isn't just as easy as translating each word by word by word because to us it makes no sense as we've just heard it's about restructuring those words in ways that we can understand and make sense to us and are complete grammatically and actually we can read easily and so there are these translations you have the likes of that which is an interlinear then it goes down step by step to turn that into ways words that we can understand and words that flow and sentences that flow and then we have the likes of the youth bible the street bible all these the message bible which are helping taking that a step further. And rather than those exact words, they're putting it into words that we can understand, words that we use that are in our vocabulary. Because I don't know about you, but I don't read the King James Bible. 
because the these and the dies and all those don't make sense. The beseech, I, I don't understand those words because I don't use them on a day-to-day basis. And so the translations that I have and I use are because they under I understand what they're trying to mean and what they're trying to say. An example of the way that we translate words, so let me give you an example of that. And again, we're going to use Luke 14, and we are going to look at the word hate, which is a very important word in this passage and a very important translation that we have to understand. And that will take us into our next thought, because there are Old Testament words for hate. And I'm using an expository dictionary of Bible words here, which you can buy online quite easily, which look at the English words, what that is. And then we'll look at the Old Testament meanings, the New Testament meanings. So we're looking at the word hate. We have Old Testament words as sane, uh, which is the only one that you use. Word, actually, the sane is a fairly, fairly common verb with the primary meaning hate. occurs 150 times. Then it goes into a whole uh, look, a whole series of meanings for that. And then we come to the New Testament words. There are three New Testament words. There is stigetos. It's only found in Titus 3.3, meaning hateful or bearing malice against one another. A variation of that, which is Theostitis, no, it's not, that's a totally wrong pronunciation. A theostigus, a variation of that, which occurs only once and refers to God haters in Romans chapter 1, verse 30. The main use and the main verb in this is missio, and I'm not pronouncing these right at all, but we'll go with that missio, which occurs about 40 times with the exclusive sense of hate. For the most part, it occurs with a literal meaning indicating animosity towards people, God, or particular attitudes. The term is also used in a non-literal sense, though this is rare. So, when it comes to translations, we translate words into specific meanings, but we must understand that they have all kinds of different meanings too. Our Bible has all kinds of different meanings. We have poetry, we have fact, we have allegory, we have parable, we have symbolism, we have all kinds of levels of meaning and literature all contained within the Bible and then of the words that are used we have all different levels of meaning and so this missio meaning hate in a literal sense meaning of bearing ill will towards another person or persons is found in the majority of texts gives examples Matthew 5 43 44 Matthew chapter 6 24 Luke 1 71 John chapter 7, verse 7, and on and on. It also talks about the world's hatred for the people of God in Luke chapter 171, John 7, 7, John 15, verse 18, Luke chapter 21, verse 17, describes suffering hatred for the cause of the gospel. We then have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 instances in which it says it is used in a non-literal sense. It says in Luke chapter 14, 26, which is the part we're looking at, a non-literal use of missio refers to hating one's father and mother. This is a hyperbolic and symbolic use of the verb. Our love for God, for Christ and for the cause of the gospel should so exceed all other loyalties that compared with our earthly love for those in our family, our love for the Lord should make our mortal attachment to our loved ones seem like hatred. Explicit malice towards our families is, of course, in no way intended. And so when we look at this chapter, when we look at this passage, when we look at these words, our initial thinking of this can be, oh my goodness, 
I'm supposed to hate my mother and father. I'm supposed to hate my brother and sister. I'm supposed to hate my children, my own life. If I don't, don't do that, I can't be Jesus' disciple. That just seems a little bit bonkers. That just seems like Jesus has gone off on one. He's gone down some sort of weird route that's just totally wrong because that doesn't make sense with anything else it says anywhere else. We're told to love and respect and care for our mothers and fathers and loved ones and children. And so what on earth is Jesus talking about if we take it in a literal sense? But as this expository dictionary tells us, as we ourselves would know, but often without the confidence, we would say, well, surely it's symbolic. Surely it's not literal. And of course it says here, it's non-literal. There are passages that are literal. There are passages that we don't take literally. And we have to distinguish and make sure that we're using our translations and using the meanings of these words in the correct way. Let me give you one other example of that, not from Luke chapter 14. In fact, let me give you a couple. We have in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about being beware of the dogs. That's not actually a warning about the dogs that we see in the street. And so he's not talking about those type of dogs. He's talking about people who come as dogs to try and rip apart the things that we know. It also says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't hide your light under a bushel. Is he actually talking about some sort of light that we carry around? Is he now talking in these days about our mobile phones which have our torches on them? Are we not supposed to hide them under a bushel which is some kind of basket like what does that even mean it's non-literal it's figurative it's something we talk about we we even talk about that today oh don't hide your, hide your light under a bushel we know that we're not actually meaning to hide a light under a bushel we're talking about it in a figurative sense we say often today that someone maybe breaks our heart it doesn't actually mean they go in and snap it in bits it's a figurative language you say it's raining cats and dogs it's all figurative language and figurative language is always to get a, a more clear reaction we can talk about the way that it's raining how much it's raining we can talk about the type of rain but if we say it's raining cats and dogs there's something that visually comes to mind so much more quickly if we talk about the pain someone has caused us in a in a scientific sense if we talk about it in a factual sense it's not quite the same impact as we say that somebody tore out our insides and broke our heart that's something more powerful than simply saying oh well, this person wronged me because they took this and actually this is what happened that doesn't have the same impact as someone is saying oh they tore out my insides and ripped out my heart and smashed it into a million pieces in that you get the sense of the pain, of the anguish, of all those sorts of things. And that's the language that Jesus is using to get a reaction. It's an example of how we translate, but it's an example of how Jesus uses such figurative language. And then he uses it in such a way that if you didn't understand it the first time, we'll go on to these two parables about one who tries to build a tower, but he first not sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money. Of course he will. Otherwise, he'll not get finished. He'll look pretty stupid. Or suppose this king who is about to go to war will not first sit down and consider whether he's able to win. Of, of course he will. And so when it comes to this idea of discipleship, of following Jesus, 
of the cost of that. Jesus is warning us about the cost, about the way we prioritize, the things we put value on, the things we put at the top of our list. That dictionary put it in such a good way. It said that it's about the loyalties that we have compared with our earthly love for our families, for our brothers and sisters, for our children. Our love for the for God should make all of those seem insignificant. Jesus here is talking about the value, the cost of how we see following him. If we're willing at ease to give that up in exchange for something else, then we obviously don't place enough value on the actual discipleship. We don't place enough value on following him. Last week we talked about proportion and the Pharisees of proportion, and this week it's about priorities. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this in The Cost of Discipleship. He talks about cheap grace. We all know that grace is the grace we get without price, without cost. It comes as a blessing from God, the forgiveness of sins. All that God gives us through the cross is grace. And he says, in this world, in this church, there's obviously a cheapened grace. It's a cheap covering for sins. No contrition is required. Still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace is a denial of the living word of God. It means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, we say, so everything can remain as it was before. It's an idea that we cheapen it because we know it is in abundance. We know it is there for us. And so we, in a way, can do whatever we want and fall back on it, knowing that God's goodness and God's grace will cover whatever we do. And in a sense, that's what we see culturally. This idea that our culture and people want life in all its fullness. We want life in all its fullness. And we want it easily. There's a consumer attitude to it. There's a, a picking of it that we want something and we want it easily. We want it now and so we can consume it. And so we want discipleship, we want this fullness of life, we want to go to heaven when we die. But Jesus warns us that there's a cost to it as well. Even when we talk about the church, like what do we invite people to be a part of? And this was a discussion that some of us were having about church. Is it a nice morning service, a good community of people, somewhere to come for some peace and quiet, maybe even for an hour, half an hour to get your kids looked after for a little while? Somewhere that will look after and teach those children. Maybe it might be your kind of music. Maybe the teaching's good. Maybe you'll get looked after. If you're not well, people will come and visit you. That can be what we invite people to be part of. Oh, come to our church because we have something good to offer you. Come to our church because you know, you'll like the music. Or come to our church because your kids will get taught a lot about Jesus and that's good. Jesus invited people to be part of something else. Something that wasn't easy. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, if anyone doesn't take up his cross and follow me, then leave now. And often in the teaching of of Jesus, people do leave. But he invited them to transformation. He invited them to fullness of life. Something greater than what we can have. Something greater than what we have known. Something greater than we can even imagine but to do that there is a cost and that cost is getting things in the right order
the call of culture is one thing, and how we spend our time, our energy, our efforts, even our money. The call of Jesus is to something greater, transformation beyond price. But it comes with a sense of responsibility. It comes with a sense of call. It comes with a sense of putting the value in the things that are valuable. And it comes with freedom. This isn't a call to take up more things in church. It's not a call to take up more things that will occupy your time. God seeks to liberate us from slavery, from oppression, from the demands of culture and even the demands of church service to live that transformative life in the places that we are, in the things that we're doing, in the acts of discipleship that we have, in the ways that we are seeking to follow God in all of our life from the Monday to Saturday, not just the Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week, and then seeking other people to follow in that. And so may you, not literally, hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even your own life, may you know the call of God upon your life, may you know the transforming power of God within your life, may you be part of that, may you take that out into the world to liberate those who are stuck in the way of culture, who are stuck in the way of having to spend their time and energy and efforts and money on trying to be better. May you transform your world, your culture, the areas around you and the lives around you, not because you have to, not because you want to pay this cost to earn something more, but because you are a disciple and you know and place value upon the valuable and acknowledge the transformative power that God through Jesus offers you and others this day. It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a responsibility. It is a cost. But it is following Jesus. Grace and peace, my brothers and sisters.